Farming Programme with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate, Gransom. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. Weather, weather and more weather. And it's starting to cause some headaches. Don't get me wrong, things aren't out of control yet, but it just won't take that much more of this wet, unsettled stuff before Mother Nature becomes more in control than we are. We'll hear from our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, shortly. And I've been to look at a vertical farm this week. What's one of those? Controlled environment agriculture has really arisen to address some of the issues around food security, climate change, the depletion of the Earth's soil. And it's the Nottinghamshire County show in a couple of weeks. Our Festival of Food area is absolutely rammed with local producers, so we're really pleased to be supporting Nottinghamshire's food economy. A sneak preview on the programme today, plus, of course, crop, livestock and grain market reports and the weather for the week to come. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you've had a good week despite the weather. A new report on poverty in the rural economy has pointed to long-term failures creating a rural premium whereby rural communities spend 10 to 20% more on everyday items like fuel despite wages being 7.5% lower than their urban counterparts. We'll have more detail and the thoughts of the CLA on that on next week's Farming Programme. And it's hard to believe, but the show season is not that far away. Traditionally one of the first of the year, Nottinghamshire County show returns to the Newark showground in a couple of weeks. And to give us a flavour of what to expect, show manager Elizabeth Housel. Morning, Elizabeth. The show seems to be continuing to grow. We've been bowled over this year, actually. Our livestock sections have really grown. We're about 35% up on cattle entries. Our sheep section has doubled. Just short of 450 sheep are going to be here on the day. So a very busy section and similar pigs and goats. So very busy with livestock, a lot more horses around too, and the introduction of rabbits um, as a competitive section to the show. Why do you think that is? Is that because they had a good experience last year after the gap because of Covid? Yeah, we worked really hard, actually, on making sure that our competitors had a good experience. It was the first time we went to a one-day format as well, so there were changes. And we've also worked with our stewards and our judges to actually help improve the sections, the breed classes. And I think that we've obviously got some of those decisions that we've made right and people want to come and compete at the show. And it's a one-day show again this year? It is, yes. Lots of stuff for families too. We have. The countryside area is always very busy. Uh, We've also got sheep shearing in there, gun dogs, uh, ferrets this year, which are new. Our festival of food area is absolutely rammed with local producers, so we're really pleased to be supporting Nottinghamshire's food economy. Main ring, we've got the Barlow's Red Barrows coming, which is the Red Arrows, but on the ground. We have another fly pass this year with the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight. Hurricane is going to be paying a visit. We've got mounted games, uh, polo demonstrations, you name it. It's going to be a very fun day. Plenty of entertainment, some music as well. Yeah, bandstand is on. In fact, we've got another performance area in our community zone. So we've got local choirs, dance groups actually coming and performing at the show as well as a full program on our bandstand and plenty of opportunities to spend money in the shopping (laughs) yes yes we are full we are actually at capacity with trade stands so clothing antiques you name it it's all going to be here to support the show and and make for a very good day out 
And for advance tickets and information, where do we go? To our website, which is www.nottinghamshirecountyshow.com. And just reminders of dates and times. It is Saturday the 13th of May. It opens at 9 and finishes around about 5, 5.30. And fingers crossed for the weather as ever. Uh, as ever, yes. If it can be a daylight today, perfect. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth, have another great show. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. To the fields now with independent agronomist Sean Sparling. So you said we needed more rain. Now it's causing problems. We're never satisfied, are we? I blame you, Sean. Morning. Yes, morning, Steve. It's everybody's fault, really, because we all welcome that rain when it started at the beginning of March. And remember, that was following a really dry start to the year in January and February. But by the end of about four inches of rain that fell throughout and on all but four days of March, I was starting to get mildly frustrated by that ongoing incessant rain, but still embracing my inner calm. But then as April has stuttered and slithered on, you know, I've started to get vicariously frustrated by conversations about the weather with growers last week and then this week well let's just say that my inner calm is struggling to remain so and my frustration about this ongoing cold chilly conditions has hit new levels two good old proper frosts hit once again this week more rain again last sunday monday tuesday thursday along with annoyingly gusty winds and it's all just complicating things now and we can't do anything about it because of the weather because the combination of double figure soil temperatures and all that soil moisture along with the fact that many Many people took the opportunity to apply the main dose of nitrogen already and crops and diseases are moving faster than we can react with crucial treatments and solutions. So as we know, correctly hitting the T1 timing in winter wheat is vital to say the least and our target being leaf three and our mission is to coat and protect that leaf and to manage that disease in the base of the wheat canopy to ensure optimum protection of subsequently emerging leaves. And until today, it's always felt like where? Well, it's only April, it's still relatively early this season as far as the unsettled wet spell goes, so there's been plenty of time for things to change, and as there's never any point worrying about the weather stopping us spraying, top resin and drilling anyway, we just wait it out and we grab the opportunities as they appear. Yes, it's been frustrating, largely because those opportunities have been all but non-existent, and because less than optimum opportunities have had to be the norm. But all of that said, we all knew that we would manage to catch things up before it got too late or too serious, wouldn't we? But here we are, you know, tomorrow's the 1st of May and all of a sudden the orns are pricking out in the winter barley. Several growth regulator timings have already gone for a Burton in winter barley. Winter wheat widely at and now moving well beyond growth stage 31. Leaf 3 fully out. Leaf 2 starting to poke out in some of my more forward earlier drilling. Leaf 3 more than just beginning to poke out as well in most wheat fields now, even those which appear to be backward in many cases. And with levels of septoria tritici beginning to become rather rather more worrying, particularly where the T0 was delayed or abandoned, there's a nauseating feeling that we soon need to run into a far more settled spell of weather to enable us to protect these crops in the manner to which they've become accustomed over these last few dry springs. Don't get me wrong, things aren't out of control yet, but it just won't take that much more of this wet, unsettled stuff before Mother Nature becomes more in control than we are. So starting with winter wheat then, there's an awful lot of stem-based browning out there, mostly 
mostly fusarium, I think, but some of that will most definitely be eye spot. And that's a disease we haven't really seen much in the last few seasons, but it is a disease that can cause significant lodging if you leave it unchecked. So with some plant growth regulator timings already running out, it's most certainly a disease that we should be aware of and be proactive against. And remember, there are very few varieties with good levels of eye spot tolerance, including, by the way, Extase, which may well have a very good disease profile when it comes to rust and septoria. But as conditions have been pretty near perfect for eye spot, your choice of T1 fungicide for your Extase should also take that into consideration because it's not great against eye spot. Septoria tritici, widespread out there in the weeds, therefore maintaining a robust dose rate of SDHIs, triazoles, multi-site inhibitors, that's going to stand you in very good stead as this season progresses into what could well be a high disease pressure year. And it'll be important to maintain a maximum interval of around 25 days between the T1 and the T2 fungicides so that we protect these canopies as the next few weeks and the next couple of leaves emerge and unfold, particularly if applications are further delayed by this weather continuing such as it is. As I said earlier, winter barley has shot through her growth stages to the point where the awns are now emerging. So do check with your advisor, make sure that any outstanding T1 recommendations are still safe and the products within them are still legal on these fast moving crops. Spring barley looks absolutely awful in some but fields across the county, particularly it seems to me where minimum tillage and direct drilling on heavier land in particular has been employed. Fields that went in mid to late February, they got 60 to 80 kilos of their nitrogen in the seedbed and which then took about six inches of rain or more since it was drilled. They've seen much of that applied nitrogen leach away past the roots before the roots could grab hold of it. While all the time the seeds were sitting wet and sluggish in those cold seedbeds. Certainly for me, I just want to see some sunshine and warm weather to cheer these up a bit. Winter beans, particularly the October drillings, they've suffered quite significant levels of frost damage over the winter, as we all know, and the significant distortion effects that the couple of frosts we saw this last week have had on these winter beans has been very noticeable as they start to push out the first signs of buds, particularly in the more sheltered parts of the fields, but fairly widely anyway. But thanks to the effects of those frosts on the early drillings and this continuing wet cold weather, the levels of disease in a lot of the winter crops are very, very high. Chocolate spot and Cercospora are much more widespread in winter beans this spring than we're used to seeing. So as I said last week, an early start to the fungicide program may well be very prudent to stay ahead of that chocolate spot in particular. Remember that fungicides in beans are pretty much more all protectant rather than curative. So it's crucial to recognise the threat and stop that disease from further development at the earliest opportunity. And in particular, in such high risk situations as they are this spring. Several useful actives when it comes to chocolate spot protection and control, azoxystrobin, for example, benzavindifluper, prothiconazole mixtures, boscolid paraclostrobin mixtures, metconazole, tebuconazole, all useful and very effective, but always check the label for the earliest safe application timing. They do vary, so don't get caught out and don't get it wrong. The frosts haven't helped emerging sugar beet crops this week either, and there's most certainly a degree of tipping on emerging cotyledons as a result in some of these fields, so it's important not to go charging in with herbicide while there's still a risk of frost, particularly while these sugar beet plants are so small and tender as they emerge. Always use a fine quality spray, by the way, with sugar beet herbicides, low dose, low volume, so 110 degree flat fan 03 is optimal. You most certainly don't want to be applying sugar beet herbicide through bubble jets or air induction nozzles if you want to get a good, reliable result. Fair bit of mouse damage out there as well, but they're not quite as clever as they think they are. They often crack the seed coat and drop the seed and move on to do exactly the same with the next one. Mice damage always looks
looks worse than it is. And there's not much you can do about it anyway. So plenty of swallows about now. Lapwing chips tottering about in the beet fields. Leverett's Lane Doggo take very little finding. And May Day is upon us. Surely there has to soon be a change in the weather. So let's see what the next seven days bring. Thanks as ever, Sean. See you next week. It's looking rather drier this week, I'm pleased to say, and we'll have the forecast along with livestock and grain market reports and take a look at a vertical farm next. The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. Farming tends to be very horizontal, spreading crops across vast fields or even in huge glasshouses. But some farms are spreading upwards and becoming almost totally automated and not necessarily in the countryside at all. I took a trip to Bedfordshire this week to Grow Pura, a tech company behind what should really be called controlled environment agriculture. They gave me a tour of what is more a lab than a farm. Lots of moving racks and pipes and different coloured LED lights and very healthy looking leafy greens, but no humans. Research manager at Grow Pura, Laura Nelson, briefly, what is the process? We prepare all our growing media and then we sow the seed and then it goes into our germination cabinet, which is inside our bio hall. From germination, it then goes into weaning, which is basically just a really humid environment to help the seedling to develop. And once it's finished developing, it goes onto our main rigs. And we've got two rigs. We've got a static rig and a dynamic rig, so we can compare the two. Once it's grown through to maturity, it comes back into the lab. We harvest it. We do some analysis. And why the different coloured lights, Laura? Obviously, lighting's a major part of plant growth. It has a huge impact on the product, so it's really important to get that right. It can affect different products differently, so we need to understand the pros and cons and the differences between different lighting suppliers, basically. Is the lighting trying to mimic natural light? So if the crop was actually out in a field, is it trying to mimic sunlight, or is it more clever than that? No, it's not quite mimicking sunlight. There, there are no LEDs currently that are able to mimic sunlight. You could also argue that you don't necessarily need to in this context. As long as the plants are getting what they need and you get a good crop from it, that's great. And you don't need to waste the extra energy. And you actually put the plants to sleep at night, don't you? How does that work? Yeah, so we basically put the lights out, lower the temperature. Yes, just part of the natural rhythms, just like you and I, we go to sleep at night, so do plants. And turning to Tim, head of engineering, humidity must be important as well, I guess. That's correct, yeah. We, we have to um, keep the humidity as high as we can for the plants. The humidity and the temperature are controlled, as well as sort of the daylight, um, morning and nighttime uh, lighting conditions and temperature. So we rise it up and, and drop it down gradually. And wind, or movement at least. Right, so the plants, um, they enjoy wind. Um, wind stimulates them to grow. Our system is unique to other vertical farming systems in that we're moving the product around. The movement itself, that is simulating the wind. So it, we get a stronger plant and better yield. Okay, so is that just purely because the, with the movement and the change in the wind, you're getting the plant actually growing upright? That's right, yeah, and, and stronger. So it, it's because it's moving, it's creating a stronger plant. Okay, and irrigation? Rather than other vertical farms where we have irrigation stations and pipe work all the way through it, we're able to bring the plant, because we're moving them on the system, to an irrigation station. So in terms of the amount of pipe work, amount of excess water, we can, we can reduce that dramatically. Give me some kind of numbers. In a, a unit that you've, you've actually installed this equipment in, you're growing an awful lot of plants. Uh, one of the biggest systems that we're looking at at the moment, we can produce up to 6,000 tonnes of herbs a year out of a single system. So yes, it's a, a fair old amount out of a very small footprint. 
What kind of footprint for that? Uh, that's about 8,000 square metres, about 100 times more if you were to grow it in a field. How many levels going up, going vertically have we got? Oh, there's plenty. Uh, as high as we can. Uh, we're, we're currently working on anything between 12 and 15 levels, depending on the, uh, the customer. And the growth time from start to finish, from seed to harvest, is how long? Crop dependent, but uh, at the moment, some of the herbs we're looking at, from seed all the way through, is 30 days. So you're growing 12 crops a year, effectively? Effectively, yes, that's right. Dr Barry Mulholland is Gropura's technical manager. Barry, the tea word. What does it all taste like? The really intense flavour um, and uh, you've got that intensity that, that lasts through the shelf life. Instead of stuff going a bit limp and uh, the taste going off, the volatiles stay really, really strong throughout the, the shelf life profile. So that's, that's a real advantage for this material. So if we did a blind taste test, would I notice any difference between uh, you know, the product that was grown in the conventional way, shall we say? I think if you took one straight off our system, uh, and even one that was several days old, if you compared it with something from a supermarket that had been shipped from Morocco for three, four days, been in a pack house, then packed and then transported within the UK, I'm pretty sure you get a more intense flavour profile from our material, without a doubt. Jeremy McNamara is the Chief Commercial Officer for Grow Pura. Jeremy, why vertical farming? Yes, controlled environment agriculture has really arisen to address some of the issues around food security, climate change, the depletion of the Earth's soil in, in many areas, many countries. There's a term called desertification. Water is more, let's say, erratic, less forecastable with climate change uh, and weather patterns changing. And then, you know, the heightened awareness around the carbon footprint of what we're doing, moving product large distances just to satisfy a consumer requirement or a consumer demand is being questioned, and rightly so. That's the trouble, isn't it? We've become used to being able to get pretty much anything, pretty much any time of the year. It is, yeah. And, And vertical farming can solve that problem because vertical farms can grow product through, you know, more than 10 crop cycles a year, whereas you'd never achieve that in, even in a glass house, and you certainly wouldn't achieve it out, outside. So actually growing more locally to where the product is consumed is a real benefit. Added to which, the other sort of megatrend I didn't mention is that I think by 2050 we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet, and there's no way we can feed that many people. I think food production has to increase by something like 56% between now and then to feed everybody. So you, we've got to look at other ways of solving that, that equation. Let's talk a little bit about Grow Pura, because mm. you're not a grower yourselves. You produce all this clever kit and the software and everything that goes around it. Yeah, Grow Pura's been going for several years now. The founder, Nick Bateman, is still in the business, and he's been essentially refining the technology for a number of years in order to solve some of the problems that vertical farmers face. So one of those problems is the fact that the yield per square metre, even though you're loading more plants in a given footprint, the yield and the price of delivering that product isn't quite there yet. So looking at that, looking at the economics of the vertical farming model, that was one of the challenges which Nick wanted to solve uh, and which Grow Pura has addressed. through. This is this sort of premium for having food grown in this way? Yeah, we don't believe there should be a premium. There's no reason to pay more. If you walked into a supermarket, you wouldn't pay more for something which was grown in a controlled environment. Why would you? There's no logical reason to do that. Consumers shop largely, when they go food shopping, they shop largely by price, maybe by a brand that they know, but there's no reason for a premium to be demanded. But we're not just selling the tech. We will help the grower design the system to suit their building or their facility. 
we're working with landowners, we're working with energy companies to have that, that implementation model as, as circular as we can. And coming back to the, um, the technology itself, the moving system and the clean room environment mean that um, the economic advantages, the food quality are enhanced versus current vertical farming. Now we've seen vertical farms in all sorts of settings, factory units, warehouse units, even halter cabin type units. They've got to be a certain spec of building, presumably, for this. And does it need to be in a certain location? We operate in a clean room, so the, the building spec is important, but we essentially we build a room within a building. And as you just saw looking at a plant, you know, you have to wear a white suit and you have to be masked up to, to go in there. You can essentially have a vertical farm anywhere, but you can't have a grow pure vertical farm anywhere you know we would require that spec to be met and we would advise and we would consult in order to implement our technology so the clean room is really important for us but also you know the idea of having a, a vertical farm in a shipping container not really suited to our system interesting concept you know growing microgreens in shipping containers businesses do that already you know we know quite a few of them but it's not our model our target is relatively large implementations you know to yield the economic benefits which i mentioned which is you know lower capex lower operating expenditure and and much higher yield compared with conventional vertical farms and from an energy point of view the location's got to be important the ideal location frankly would be where there would be um, a, a renewable source of energy so solar potentially wind so you know so that's why we're talking to energy providers because this is a great way of doing something you know with that energy maybe there's an excess of energy at certain times during the day they can't sell it back to the grid i think there's a sweet spot which has a landowner a grower a sustainable energy source powered by the grow pure technology i think that makes perfect sense and this all fits quite nicely into the sustainability agenda doesn't it It does, yeah, it really does, especially based on what I just said about the renewable energy source. If you can create that perfect circle, I think we can really turn the needle up. Okay, vertical farms are relatively energy consuming, but if you've got a high chunk of that coming off a a renewable power source, if you've got, you know, that being topped up by the grid, then I think you're addressing one of those major issues. And of course, we've no soil, we've no pesticides, etc., so we're growing in other, you know, other substrates other than soil, as you saw, and recycling more than 95% of the water. Does it need to be a certain minimum size to be viable for a grower? There are levels. So, so we're looking at a small, medium and large. A large would be at around 100,000 square feet. You know, medium, maybe half of that, small, something less. There needs to be a certain scale to get some level of return on that investment. And one of the issues, and this is something which I think where a lot of vertical farmers are failing is, you know, the financial model looks great, but in real terms, the yield, the the scale maybe doesn't really achieve the investment return that, that, you know, the investors are expecting. Our system, because our yield is between two and four times as high for any given footprint of facility, we're confident that we can achieve those returns. There must, though, be a hefty initial infrastructure cost outlay for this stuff. There is, yeah. The the system is modular to an extent. What we're also talking to some interested parties about is doing a phased rollout, so starting with some of the footprint and then moving up. To get an end-to-end system from seeding through to essentially shipping packed goods, you need to build that level of infrastructure, the end-to-end piece, whatever the scale. But there are other ways to skin that cat. So you could have one or two or three or four or more bio halls where the growing takes place. Or you could put the plant near a food producer 
and then essentially feed their line with our crops. Yeah. All right. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff. There's more info at growpura.com. Links FM Farming. Market reports. Starting with livestock and from Louth Livestock Market auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Good morning, Oliver. Morning, Steve. This week's weekly roundup from Louth. Study with the prime cattle, which sees heifers sell to a top of 294 pence per kilo or £1,731 for JS Brooks of Strubby. Steers sell to 284 pence per kilo and £1,680 from the same good home. While prime bulls sell to a top of 278 pence per kilo, £1,803 for R. Ray and Sons of Boothby Grafo. On to the Cool cows, which see a top for Herring Farms Limited, 200 pence per kilo or £1,416 for Pedigree Lincoln Reg. And on to the sheep, handful of prime lambs about with a mixed show, see an SQQ of 310.02 pence per kilo with a top for T&J Battersby at 338 pence per kilo or £145 per head. On to the prime hogs and another slightly smaller show, however, Strong trade again with an SQQ of 276.83 pence per kilo to top at 303 pence per kilo for AJ Colson and Sons of Oscarby or £161 per head for Emma Benj. Onto the cool use, not so many on offer, however, another tremendous trade across the board, leaving all in average of £136.55, pence. again making us probably one of the dearest places to sell use. Topping with cool rams at £212 per head with W. Taylor & Co. of Tetford, while use topped at £200 per head for Mark Smith of Theddlethorpe. Finally, store sheep and just a handful of badger-faced Welsh mountain ewes with lambs at foot to top at £50 per life. Also included on Friday the 21st of April was our second spring special sale of breeding and store cattle with breeding bulls selling to a high of £3,000 for John Thurby of Kexby. Cows and calves selling to £2,450 for TF Stubbs of Trustthorpe. Store steers sell to £1,390 for C&JM Cook, while heifers sell to £1,320 for TF Stubbs. Huge thank you to everyone that's been supported this week. We're back on tomorrow with store cattle and prime and cool cattle and all classes of sheep. This is Oliver Chapman for Masons and Louth Market, and thank you. Thanks, Oliver. And reviewing the grain markets and with guide prices, Openfield's Alice Killam. Morning, Alice. Good morning, Steve. After three lacklustre days, proper old-fashioned days actually, we saw the bears back in full flow by Thursday, with the UK markets finishing £6 down by the end of the day. The wider commodity market has not had a good week. Crude oil plunged 4% on Wednesday, dropping back below $80 once again. The slowdown in the US economy and an increase in Russian oil exports has squared OPEC's decision 10 days earlier to drop production and the whole market in general seems nervous of recession, which means less buying and bigger stock numbers. By lunchtime Thursday, we saw a second cancellation of US corn, which has been sold to China. 233,000 tonnes Thursday in this marketing season, 500,000 tonnes of cancellations this week alone. The US weather models have also helped the bears. In Kansas, it's raining, so there will be many who now think the earlier problems with crop conditions will be solved. I am a little less convinced that it will have such a magic effect. The UK market is simply following everyone else. We calculate to export. Indeed, we are exporting and in volume too, but those buying from the UK are aware of other outside markets. If the global market falls, then so must we. With the potential issues that we have spoken about for a period now, it is incredibly frustrating on days like this. But the bears, ably supported by the US funds, are winning hands down currently. For new crop, we certainly have some time for sentiment to change. 
for old season there is much less time available. It will be May next week and though it doesn't look like an early harvest at the minute, we are left with only three months to go. It's going to take some real nerve to hold everything back for the end, just in case. A couple of points on milling wheat premiums which I think is relevant for some. Old crop premiums must have touched something close to £70 in the last couple of days. New season 2 is something close to £60 for those willing to trade the premium before it's in the shed. But with base prices well under £200 now for new season 2, the shine has certainly come off. It's harder for all of us to sell into a falling market. Rapeseed, having recovered Tuesday's losses on Wednesday, in spite of the lower crude oil, fell away too, alongside everything else. Ample supplies in the EU and big bean crop coming in from Brazil, despite Argentina posting their lowest numbers in 34 years. The European Union rapeseed imports in the 2022-23 season that started in July had reached 6.47 million tonnes by April 22, up 50% from 4.31 million a year earlier, data published by the European Commission showed on Wednesday. Like old crop wheat, we want to look at the new crop futures for direction now, with anything close to four must be considered a sell. Guide prices for this week, circa Friday morning, feed wheat June 180 to 190, July 185 to 195, September 180 to 190 and November 185 to 195. Barley, May 160 to 170, July 155 to 165, August 150 to 160, September 155 to 165. All seed rate this week is circa 365 to 370. That's all for another week. As usual, please call for firm values as the level of volatility seen is changing prices hourly, not even daily anymore. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. There will be some light rain around, but it's certainly looking drier and warmer this week. Just light winds from the south today, some showers and highs of 16 Celsius. Monday and Tuesday see calm days with any breezes being variable in direction. Just some light rain and highs nudging 17 degrees. And it really stays that way, under high pressure for the rest of the week. The wind, such as it is, veers more easterly later in the week, dropping temperatures a couple of degrees, but staying mostly dry. Well, that's your lot for this week. Back same time next Sunday or whenever you like on the Free Links FM app, all podcast platforms and smart speakers. Just ask it to play the latest farming programme when we'll talk poverty in the rural economy and the rest of the week in agriculture. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a great week. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.